This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On August 8, 2006, Roger Goodell was named Commissioner of the NFL, a position that he still holds today as we are about to close out the year of 2020. Goodell started out as an intern for the league under Commissioner Pete Rizal, a man that really helped usher in the NFL in the era of television. Also in 2006, this week's guest started at an organization that reaped the rewards of the time that Rizal put in, and that was with the NFL Network. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time you step up the DeLorean, the date is June 1st. 1977 at the footsteps of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We're here to tag along on the first day on the job for previous guests of the Football History Dude podcast. That guest was Joe Horrigan. He was a long time Mr. Everything for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he would end up retiring on June 1st of 2019. I wonder if he knew that the gig that he started a little bit over 40 years ago would end up near the end of his career lead to one of the definitive books on the 100-year history of the league. And speaking of that book, NFL Century, that's where this week's guest comes in. Sean Horrigan is Joe's son. Now, we started off this show by talking a little bit about his childhood and kind of that relationship there with Joe, what he had, how did he then dig into his career, which has spanned various roles in sports media and other things outside of sports media as well. So we're going to kind of get into that. I just want to give you a quick little tidbit into him. He started with NFL Network in 2006 as a researcher, working on many projects there, a role that he would stay in until 2011. Then he worked on other projects, of course, including one that's forthcoming that I'm going to use air quotes here, premieres on the show, and we'll get into that later as well. But first, I want to remind you that the Football History Do podcast is part of the Sports History Network, and we're striving to be the headquarters for sports history here. We are a band of sports history content creators, and we're always looking to partner with more creators just like us. So if you're interested in joining the network, you can learn more over at the website. To get there, you can head to sportshistorynetwork.com. But for now, let's get into the interview with Sean Horrigan. And with you, for it's pretty simple because, you know, I brought your father on, Joe Horrigan, not too long ago. I mean, as, geez, maybe we'll call it 10 episodes ago. And the first question I have to ask you is, what was it like growing up in a football family, football with a football history buff like Joe Horrigan? Well, I, it was just how I grew up. I, I don't have anything to compare it to. Uh, I, I I grew up always hearing about the, the 1960s Buffalo Bills and, and then the, the 1920s Canton Bulldogs. So it was just it was second nature to me. Yeah, it's one of those things where when I guess they, what's how does that saying go? When you're inside the bottle, you can't read the label on the outside, or something along those lines. And do you remember any? I don't know. Just as, as a kid, hearing a story of him bringing home work, I, work. I use air quotes work because and him just like what's the story that stuck out in your mind? Well, at the time, like when I was a kid, uh, he he was really focused on the the Hall of Fame. There, 
their research, they didn't have a lot from the 1920s. And he made it a purpose when, when he was young, uh, young curator to, to study the 1920s. And I remember he, he would come home and he'd bring the books home with him. And, uh, he, he would really, you know, put the time in and, and mastered it and became the expert on it. And then like when I was a kid, we would have, we would have birthday parties for, I have an older brother and we would have birthday parties for us and the neighborhood kids. And, and, uh, my dad would bring home a, a film projector and he would play the football follies for us in the basement. So it, that, that was kind of like the young childhood for me. Yeah. Something that not everybody gets to live that close to the hall of fame and be able to deal with all that. I mean, did he ever bring like players around for any of those parties or any other time? Uh, no, not, not to the house. Uh, like when I was young, the, the hall of fame autographs weren't a big thing just yet. And the hall of fame would have, uh, autograph signing sessions. And it was usually guys who lived within driving distance. And a lot of them would be the, the old school Cleveland Browns. So like, uh, when I was young, I'd, I'd, I'd get to hang out and, and meet and get autographs from Dante Labelli and Otto Graham and Lou the Toe Rosa and, and then even more recent guys like uh, Paul Warfield. And uh, then in the 90s, guys like uh, Andre Reed, who I'm a Bills fan, so that, that was huge for me to, to be able to meet him when I was in high school. Uh, so, so I would go to the Hall of Fame for those types of things. But uh, as far as people coming over to the house, his, his colleagues did. And that was about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard different people on the store or the show talk about, and I can't, I'm kind of wondering, was it, golly, I can't remember who it was now, but they told the story of, yeah, they were sitting there as a young kid and the, their their father kept bringing home like uh, these different kinds of uh, athletes and stuff. Was was your father one of them that told me that story, you think, that or was it someone else? That, that was probably uh, something he would know about. I know... Uh, his father, who who worked for the the American Football League and then the Buffalo Bills, uh, he he passed away before I was born, so I just heard the stories. Uh, but he uh, he was friends with the players, and uh, I know there were stories about he didn't drive, and he would make Jack Kemp pick him up and and take him into work because he was on the way. And then uh, I know when I was in high school, uh, I, I went to a Bills training camp, and I got to meet a lot of the. The guys who also just happen to be visiting, uh, like Tom Tippy Day, uh, Ernie Ward, like these, these old Bills players. And, and they told me about my grandfather, which, you know, hearing from people who weren't in the family was, was interesting. And, and they would tell me he was, he was like a big brother, just a, a really great guy. They, they really appreciated him. And not, never, I never got to know him. So that I, I took that to heart. Like that's, that, uh, he, uh, he had a positive influence on a lot of people's lives. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Like you said, you didn't, unfortunately, didn't get a chance to really know him yourself. But then hearing these other people that some people look as demigods, for instance, <laughs> to talk about your grandfather. And I think it was when I talked to Joe talking about a story of being a little kid or something like that and, and working with uh, some, because it was Buffalo Bills. I know that was where the story came from. And I wish I could remember the exact. And uh, one thing I do know I asked your dad, though, was if Speaking of you're so close to the Hall of Fame and you were there so much, if you were running out of, and I don't want, I'm using this because I don't want it to be burning, but if you were running out of the burning Hall of Fame, what's the one artifact you would grab? The one, you know, I would, I would pass up on all the busts. Those can be replaced. Uh, it's not like the, the bus were actually at the games or anything. I, I would probably get all the, the uh, correspondences and everything from the, the foundation of the league, grab as many of those things as I can, because those are what's replaceable. Uh, 
Yeah, if, if, if I could grab the birth certificate or, or any of the early George Halas correspondences, that's that's what I would grab. Yeah, I mean, there's some things, like you said, that are irreplaceable and in a different era where now it's, we have a digital and everybody sees it at the same time versus back then, geez, it's one of a kind. I mean, like to the chorus sense. And that kind of brings me to, I'm trying to bring it full circle to getting into your work and your body of uh, coming back to Canton to work with your father on a book, uh, the NFL Century book. What was your role and what was the process for creating that book? Well, my, my role was I was really there to help him uh, because he was, he hadn't retired from the Hall of Fame yet. And I I was in a place in my life where I could actually take the time and, and move back to Canton and uh, and work on it. So when he needed research, when he knew what he wanted to talk about, I would go into the archives at the Hall of Fame or I would get online and, and I would find that. And then I would try to find more interesting pieces or uh, just just try to find anything that hadn't been covered yet. And I, I think we did a decent job of, of that. Uh, so how, how that really came about for me being involved in that was probably about eight or nine years earlier, we had talked about working on a book together. And uh, I, at the time I lived in Los Angeles working for NFL Network. And I would I came back on uh, I had some vacation at a crude time. And I, I spent two or three weeks in the, in the Halls Research Center, in the, the old library. And uh, we were just kind of formulating what, what a book could be. And then unfortunately his busy time of year and my busy time of year were the opposites where his, his slows down once the Hall of Fame weekend is, is over. And for me, that was the NFL season. And then my off season would be when he would be preparing. So it, it never really came to fruition. And then I, I had been living in San Francisco and I was planning on moving back to LA. And he said, hey, I, I want to work on this. And I said, hey, great. I, I, I can move back to Ohio for four months maybe, and then I'll move back to LA. No, four years later, I'm still in Canton. But... The, the original idea was, yeah, I was just going to go and, and help him, and then I would move back to, to L.A. Right, yeah. And, I mean, four years later, like you said, still, I mean, at the birthplace of the uh, the NFL there, going back. Okay, so you mentioned working there in NFL Network. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. I mean, w- how did you jump into this multimedia person that you are? Sure. Uh, well, I guess, like, even as, as long as I can remember, I wanted to work in TV or film or something along those lines. And in the nineties, I was really, I was in high school and then college. I was really influenced by the independent filmmakers that, that were making money and, and making films that, that people were actually seeing. It was like they were taking the spirit of Ed Wood, but they actually had talent. I'm talking about like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and even, even Sam Raimi in the eighties. Those were the guys I kind of looked up to. So I wanted to get into that field. And I was always a fan of NFL films and, and I always thought, well, I, I could, I could do something for films too. And, uh, I had an opportunity to, to intern for them. And, uh, and I, I continued working and or working on my degree in school where studying broadcast and film. But, uh, when I was at films, I also had, it's kind of divided. I, I wanted to not only work in the, the media industry, but I also wanted to work in the sports media, sports PR. And, uh, I double majored in, in public relations and I was, I was kind of, kind of divided between the two. So, uh, the, once I graduated, I, I did a quick, uh, grad assistantship with the Buffalo Bills and then I landed a full time job working in, in motorsports in, in, uh, Detroit. And that was more print and online, 
but that that's helped me um, get to a position where where I could I could get out to LA with with an NFL Network, where uh, I was a researcher, so I kind of fell in the uh, the family line for that. Right, exactly. I mean, it's almost like you said, following your father's footsteps as far as the NFL researcher goes. Uh, when you were younger, what? So you mentioned quick uh, Tarantino, Kevin Smith. What? What really like for you? What got you into saying I want to be a producer or an editor or whatever the behind the scenes? Like, what's your spark for that? I I, I view myself more as just just a storyteller. It's um, I, I like I've I've kind of I've, I've been working in documentary now, and I I think this is really where I'm supposed to be. Uh, it's I, I kind of I. I try to do it all. I, I shoot, I edit, I write, I produce. And these days, just the way everything is, um, unless you're a world-class cinematographer, you you have to be pretty uh, fluid with what you can do to, to be able to work on different projects. So I, I might be in uh, Michigan you know, next week running audio for a corporate uh, video, or the next week I might be down in Nashville running camera for HDTV, something like that. But when it all comes down to it, when I'm working on my own projects, I just view myself as a storyteller and, and I, I like to educate and entertain people. What do you think is the difference between telling a story? Like you said, you're multifaceted. When you have the hat on of the video camera operator versus the producer side, like what story are you telling when you're in your mind between those two? Well, the, the producer, like if I have a story in mind, um, especially if I'm doing interviews, I know where the interview has to go. I can lead it that way. There's, there's a, a difference between like, say documentary and news journalism or news journalism. You, you don't really lead your, your subject documentary and, and video production. You have a story in your mind and, and sometimes you have to guide people to that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I, when I'm producing, I know what I'm supposed to do. And sometimes depending on answers, you know, you, you have to be able to uh, change directions and you might find something more interesting in, a, in an answer that you're getting from somebody. So you pivot and move in that direction. Whereas opposed to if I'm operating a camera, I, I usually, if I have a director of photography, he and I are working together with the director saying, all right, this, this is the, uh, this is how we want the picture to look. This is our depth of field. Uh, so it's, it's usually somebody else's vision. If I'm the director of photography and, and I'm operating a camera, uh, I don't, I don't claim to have that eye that so many great videographers do. Uh, I, I, I usually have, um, something in my mind where it looks clean aesthetically. I don't, I don't try to get crazy with, uh, Dutch angles or anything like that. I just, I just try to make it clean and, and I, I don't try to get too artsy. Um, I, I just like uh, clean storytelling and somebody else wants it, me to go in a certain direction. That's, that's what I get paid to do. Right. Yeah, okay. So I have two, two kind of follow-up questions there. First, what, what is a Dutch angle? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you don't see it a lot, but a Dutch angle is when, when the camera is kind of uh, tilted and it's your, your picture's crooked. Okay. All right. So then follow-up. Not the same line of questioning, but you mentioned you don't have the eye for like the vision of a you know, videographer. What is there? Okay. In, in professional sports, as far as everyone's concerned. So there's a, there's like a split millisecond difference between 
a quarterback at the top of his game in the NFL versus the quarterback that's at like the 32nd quarterback. They're not really that far difference. Is it the same in like saying producing a movie where you have such, there's so high talent that it's so close or is there like five that are so far beyond where it's not even, it's not even comparable. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely people out there who they just have a gift and, and there's, you can aspire all you want, but I mean, if, if, if you don't have that natural ability to see what they see, uh, you know, there, there's no shame in that. Most, most of the world isn't like that. Uh, well, I, I take like NFL films and they're cinematographers, they're camera operators, uh, operators, they're photographers. They're the best in the business when it comes to sports. You know, they know how to frame it. They know where the action is probably going to go. Uh, they, they get the most beautiful shots. Somebody like me, you can give me that camera and I might do a decent job, but I'm not, I'm not NFL films caliber when it comes to that. I, I'll be the first to admit it. So then, okay, you bring up a good point then with NFL films. So how do they, if I'm hiring for my day job and I have different kinds of skill sets that I'm looking for, right? And I have different types of talent. What are they looking for in a photographer or a videographer, whatever it is for the NFL films? Uh, you know, from the ones that I, I met back 20, 21 years ago as an intern and ones I, uh, I, I, being on the LA side, we had, we had different video guys, but the films guys, they, they're artists. Uh, I, the, the bar is set just so high. So getting, getting guys who are fast thinking that, that know what to expect, that know the game of football, that know, you know, uh, when, when that Hail Mary is going to come. Those are the types of guys I would imagine that they want. Uh, probably guys who are physically able to, to get certain shots. Uh, I know, I know like there, there is an issue with, with some videographers out there. Uh, I'm five foot nine, uh, on a good day. I'm not going to get hired to go shoot the NBA. That's just how it is. So with, with films, their guys, I, I do recall their guys being pretty big dudes, pretty tall. Even the audio guys, everybody, everybody's physically fit. Everybody knows X's and O's. And then they know that they, they know their craft. So it's, it's a really impressive, uh, skill set and physical abilities and, and just the, the eye that they have for those, those types of shots that you, you, you can look at other sports. You can look at other sports film companies. Uh, nothing touches NFL films. Yeah. And I mean, I'm biased when it comes to that because I'm an NFL only pretty much person, but you bring up, I mean, it's interesting to think about the games within the games and you don't even consider. So I see someone on the sideline and that person's holding the camera. Okay. Cause when you see them, they're always, they're always there. They're always in the right spot, but you don't get to see what they had to do to get to that level, to be in that spot. Just like the, you know, like the, the, um, the officials on the field, you know, you always see them at the end of it. You don't really focus on them. You focus on the ball, the players and all these things, but then there's that, anticipation talent like you just said uh did you have any speaking of that maybe a mentor or someone that gave you like some wise words of wisdom as far as when you went into your career yeah i, I always had my dad to lean on when it when it came to especially with the, the pr stuff uh you know the pr knowledge also comes into a role as when i worked in broadcasting uh 
he, he was able to play both sides, but, but Denny Lynch was a mentor of mine. He, he's, he was a PR guy for a long time with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Chris Willis was, was my boss at NFL Films. And I don't know if you've interviewed Chris yet, but if you haven't, you should. I mean, he, he knows everything about everything. Tell you, tell you everything about Joe Carr, probably up until his last meal. So those, those guys. And then along the way, when I worked in auto racing, I had some good bosses and, and some good colleagues. Uh, a guy named Jim Brumfield was, was always solid and, and he's still working in, in motorsports. So I, I've always had guys that I could, I could ask and I, I still do. And I, I have colleagues and partners on projects that, you know, are, are great. Uh, my, my partner James, uh, on these, on some documentaries we've been working on, he, uh, he's just a great guy to bounce stuff off of. He, he's like me. We, we both did the LA thing for a while. Then I have a partner named John Bujak up in, up in Detroit with Mongoose Films. And, you know, those are just guys that we're, we're, uh, We've all been in the business about the same amount of time doing different things. But when it comes to, Hey, I need some advice, business practices, creativity wise, anything like that. Those, those are just solid guys to have around you. And really to be, I think to be successful in probably any business, but uh, especially a creative business, you really have to surround yourself with, with hardworking, uh, creative people. Yeah. There's someone that we often. I guess, immortalized when it comes to NFL, and then you add the word film on the end of it. Steve Sable, did you ever get a chance to meet him or interact with him? Yeah, I, I met him a few times. Uh, the The first time was I, I was in high school getting ready to go study film and broadcasting in college, and and I knew that NFL Films was premiering. Uh, they, they just developed this 360-degree theater at the Hall of Fame, and and I, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to go to the uh, kind of the, the opening of it. And the NFL Films people were there. And and for me, that, that was just like the golden opportunity to pick people's brains and, and figure out how can I get an internship with them. Uh, at the time, I considered like an internship with NFL Films to be just as important as, as a degree. So uh, I, I had the chance to meet Steve and uh, right away uh, – I was, you know, a little intimidated, but uh, I, I was your typical high school kid uh, who listened to Nirvana. I had kind of long hair, big sideburns. I, I looked like a goofball, but I was wearing a suit and Vans sneakers that kind of matched the suit. But I was, I was hoping nobody would notice. So when I when I met Steve Sable, he kind of looked me up and down and he said, "I like your style." And I was like, "What?" Then I noticed he was also wearing a suit with sneakers. He said, "Hey, man, you got to be comfortable." So, you know, three, three years later and I was an intern there and, and, uh, I'd see him in the hallway and say hello, but, uh, I didn't get to know him or anything like that. You know, it'd be like an Apple intern meeting Steve Jobs. You know, you, you say hello, keep your eyes out and keep moving. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, again, a, a name that everyone knows, even if you're not really that deep into understanding what he did for the NFL and to really help popularize it. I mean, what do you think? So you brought it up, a story that's being, that's was really what's being told over the, or, or the viewer, over the airwaves. What do you think is the difference between being able to watch the game and then we'll go back to that 1958 championship versus maybe someone that could only listen to the game? Well, I th- football is a, it's a visual medium. Uh, you know, it, it, it was made for TV. So I, I've listened to games on the radio as, as recently as a few years ago. And, uh, it's there's some talented play-by-play people and some color analysts and it's entertaining, but it's really, the sport is really meant to be seen. 
I think baseball is a little more relaxed and you can just sit back on your porch, crack open a beer and listen to AM radio. And, and that, that might be a good evening for you, but football to see everything and, and to feel it through, through visual, like an impact, there's nothing that compares to it. Yeah. When I, I brought Dan Carlin on the show and he's not a, I know, have you heard of Dan Carlin before? I uh, don't think so. Okay. So he's a podcaster. His, his podcast is all about history, but mostly military history. However, he was one of my, I guess you could call him my hero as far as podcasting. One of the reasons why I got into it. So I brought him on for the hundredth episode. He happened to know quite a bit about the NFL. He worked with Jim Brown when he was a radio announcer. And he, he talked about how the game, unlike other sports for the most part, are each drive is like a big story leading up to that climactic event versus baseball. Yes, it's okay. If you got a man on double or if you got a man on second, sure, that makes a difference in how you're going to swing the bat and all those types of things. But it's it's different when it comes to football. Like you said, it's a visual sport. And speaking of visual and NFL network and films and all these things, what was your favorite project that you were able to work on when you're at, whether it was NFL films or an NFL network? Uh, films, films, I, you know, I was the research in, uh, intern, so uh, I was going through a lot of tape. Um, I, I did get to work on a pretty cool little campaign that actually was a little controversial. Uh, and it, it was, uh, cutting some, some promotional commercials and they were using at the time he was, he was new nationally. I mean, we in Michigan knew who he was, but Eminem, uh, and that the, my name is, and, and they changed that over to my name is Joe and, and they were showing all the, the, the famous Joe football players, you know, with big emphasis on Joe Namath. So that was cool. I, I was a, just a guy who, who logged tapes for that. But the, the best project I, I worked on would be uh, at, at NFL Network. We, we would do the road to Canton every year. And that, that was where, you know, I, I wore more than just a research hat. It was, it was more like an associate producer working with a guy named Jason Wormser. And uh, we would bring in guys, um, uh, I, I know we, we brought in Jared Bell and, and uh, Rick Gosling and, and we would have these panel discussions with Hall of Famers. And that was just my wheelhouse, you know, that, that was talking about the new classes and, and the, uh, we, we'd do the cut down from the, uh, semifinalists to the finalists. It, it was just a really cool project to work on. Yeah. You're, you're working on a project that is just, of course, you get to see behind the scenes stuff that never goes to air, but, life transforming events for these people that have gone through so much work and becoming crafts and masters at their game. And then you get to see that culminate. It must be so cool to be at the end when they finally receive that gold jacket, the bust and everything. I mean, have you been intimately involved with that in any of your roles or? Uh, no, we, for me, I, we would do the, the press conferences, Rich Eisen would, uh, announce the names and I, I would be the researcher for that. So I'd be on hand helping him with his notes and, and uh, kind of being a uh, liaison between him and, and the hall of fame. Uh, I know in more recent years, you know, they, they've done the knock where um, I, th- I think, I think it was my dad's idea. And, and um, I think what it would became is it's, it's David Baker and he goes and knocks on the door and, and that's just fantastic TV. Uh, that's, David Baker is, uh, he's, he's an excellent person at so many things, but and I, I think it's noticeable too that he's also the showman. So, so when, when he's knocking on those doors and, and everybody's reactions are there, that's great. I haven't been a part of that. Uh, 
I, you know, I, I wish I would have come up with the concept, <laughs> but uh, they, they do things a little differently now. Yeah. It's something that, I mean, you, when you see the, the person that is getting that knock on the other door and they come out and you can see the emotions from the last, sometimes it's 80 years almost because of, you know, being the, the senior class is very cool. And like you said, David Baker is the perfect character to have for that. Cause he's, I mean, he's, he, I mean, he's, you can't miss him, right? I mean, <laughs> he walks into a room. <laughs> he's recognizable. You know, if they had somebody else from another Hall of Fame representative knocking on Ray Lewis's door, Ray Lewis might, might take him a second to figure out that, you know, it's not somebody from the hotel, but, you know, Dave, David Baker, you know, <laughs> a uh, seven foot tall man comes to the door. You, you know who he is and you know why he's there. So it's, it's great. And then they, they did a couple things with like, uh, uh, on TV with Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cowher that, that was just fantastic. Yeah. That was, I, and like, I loved all the moments, but that was even the first time when he came out for Cowher because it was with, with Johnson, it's like, you knew it was coming, but when he came out for Cowher and that, that lip was quivering like that, that was so cool. Cause also like David Baker, like, like you mentioned seven foot, 400 whatever pound man just a giant dude but with that smile and you could tell like he's the guy that just such a like a teddy bear we'll call him a big giant teddy bear just he has that care and compassion you can tell he he really cares i brought him on it was right when covid first hit or when we we all got sequestered it was around april and just the stories that he told was just super cool to hear from his perspective and i mean you again going back i almost like jealous where you've been able to hear these different stories from you know, like your father's firsthand, but you've been creating your own stories as well. And you've been helping document some of these incredible individuals lives. I mean, what are some that maybe you have upcoming or in the future that you're going to be working on? Sure. Um, yeah. I, I'm not, I don't completely work in, in just sports anymore. I do a little of everything, but um, my, my heart is always going to be in, in pro football in the NFL. So, uh, you're the first medium that, uh, I'm going to tell this, but in, in February, uh, I, I've got two short documentaries coming out on, uh, PBS Western Reserve. That's, that's Ohio's largest PBS station that will also be available nationally. Uh, I'm not exactly how sure how, uh, other PBS affiliates will go about getting it, but we, uh, we, we, I have one, uh, with, with my crew. Uh, about Marion Motley. And, and then I have one, uh, with, with my partner James on, uh, the Black College Football Hall of Fame. And the, the Motley stuff is, is really interesting and, and kind of confusing when I tell people that, uh, we, we have a full, a feature length documentary that we're still working on. COVID kind of mucked up a little bit. And then we have a short Marion Motley documentary that, that'll be on PBS. And then at the same time, kind of going along with everything that, that kind of came up from the documentary stuff, there's a, a grassroots uh, campaign to build a, a physical monument, memorial, statue, something of, of Marion Motley here in Canton, because this, this is his hometown. So uh, I don't know. If, uh, I know you would be familiar with, with Marion Motley, and I, I imagine most of your, your listeners would be, but uh, we, we just, we felt that there, there have been stories on the, we'll call them the Forgotten Four. That's, that's a title of one of the other documentaries, uh, about Marion and, and Bill Willis and Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. And we're not trying to just do another one of those. We are focused a lot on Marion being from Canton 
and Canton not necessarily uh, recognizing him. It's been a while. He, he, he passed away 21 years ago. And we just kind of felt like people are kind of forgetting who he was and what great things he did. And I think the analogy that, that uh, some of the guys use is what if uh, Jackie Robinson was from Cooperstown? So, and you know, there's a lot of great stuff about and, and deserved stuff for Jackie Robinson. But the, the fact that we have one of the four Jackie Robinsons of, of pro football who, who did it a year before Jackie and, and paved the way for Jackie, but uh, one of them is, is from the Hall of Fame city. So we were doing a, a feature length on that. And then to uh, kind of, we're, we're an independent film uh, and to, to help kind of raise money for it, we, uh, we just, we, PBS offered to, uh, buy a half hour story. So they're, they're not the same story. They're, they're different audiences. The PBS one is definitely more for that audience. The, the feature length one will be a little more football oriented, a little, a uh, little more modern, uh, feel to it aesthetically than, than, uh, our, our PBS story, which our PBS one, I, I, I love it. And we've gotten a lot of, um, good reviews on it so far, but, uh, they, they will be different. So they're, they're both worth watching. And then, uh, from, from that, from PBS being happy with that, they, they asked us to do a uh, kind of a timeline story about how and why the Black College Football Hall of Fame exists and why is it in Canton, Ohio, out of all places. So both of those stories will be coming out in February. Yeah. I mean, that there's a special, I guess, family feel to that for you as far as the Black College Hall of Fame goes to. We talked a little bit about that on the episode with your father. Uh, as a as a layman sport fan, before coming into this podcast myself, I did not know, like I had heard the name Marion Motley before, but I, I did not understand, nor did I realize that he will say, you know, I knew Jackie Robinson. That's the best way to put it. I've known what, what that meant to baseball and that meant to America, but I did not understand what Marion Motley, and now you're even telling me the big four. I knew Kenny Washington. Um, you mentioned a couple names in there. I, I actually don't even know. What were the other two names? Sure. So so in 46, uh, pro football was being reintegrated. I say reintegrated because uh, there had been 13 African-American players that, that played uh, in the 20s and into the early 30s, and then there was this what's described as a gentleman's agreement, nothing official, but to uh, ban black players. And, uh, and, and 46 is, is when the LA Rams and the Cleveland Browns, two rival leagues, the, the upstart All-America Conference with the Cleveland Browns and the NFL's LA Rams, who just moved to LA. Uh, the, the LA, they, they, the four players, Woody Strode and, and Kenny Washington, uh, were UCLA guys that, that they brought in for the Rams and the Cleveland Browns, Bill Willis and Mary Motley, they were brought in for completely different reasons. The, the Rams were kind of forced to integrate. They were, when they moved from Cleveland, coincidentally, uh, to LA, they were playing in, uh, in a publicly financed stadium, we'll say. And there, there was a lot of pressure on them, especially from the, the black sports writers to say, Hey, if you're going to be playing in a publicly funded stadium, you need to have some black players. 
And, you know, there wasn't, the Rams weren't looking to do that. They're, the owner, Dan Reeves, wasn't looking to do that. Uh, and, and their players had a difficult time. They, they, they were mistreated by the team, the league. It, it was not a success for Woody Strode and Kenny Washington. Uh, meanwhile, in Cleveland, at the upstart league, uh, Paul Brown was different. He just wanted the best players. He, they weren't a part of the NFL, so there was no ban on African-American players. Uh, Paul Brown just wanted the best players. He had coached Bill Willis at Ohio State and coached for and with Mary Motley. It's Bill Willis, or excuse me, uh, uh, Paul Brown was the coach at Maslin Washington High School. And Mary Motley played for Camp McKinley, and they were rivals. And then uh, during World War II, Paul Brown went and coached at the Naval Academy in Chicago. And Mary Motley had to enlist in the Navy. And as fate would have it, they, he uh, he played for Paul Brown. So so Paul Brown brought both men on, and you know, the stories differ about how how he went about signing both men and and uh, all of that. But it was it was because the teammates and the coach and the city of Cleveland all accepted these men for just being men that uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, Branch Rickey was watching what was going on in Cleveland that uh, Bill Willis and, and Mary Motley were playing a contact sport and were being accepted there that, that Branch Rickey felt comfortable to bring uh, Jackie Robinson to the majors. And, and what's really what well, we, we touched upon in, in the documentary, of course, is, is it wasn't just racist things being said uh, by fans and, and opponents, but this football is a physical game. So these guys had to take cheap shots. They had to have people spiking their hands. They went through all sorts of stuff uh, that that uh, I, I find it hard to, to just fathom what they, what they went through. And they they kept their composure and they both had Hall of Fame careers. Yeah, talk about, like you said, go, overcoming obstacles that nobody else on the field had to overcome, yet they had Hall of Fame careers. And I asked something on the, the podcast to everybody. Now I'm giving you my virtual keys to the DeLorean. You can get that baby up to 88 miles an hour. You can go back in any point. But because you just recently are talking about the Marion Motley story, let's go talk to Marion Motley. You can be there present for a moment and ask him a question. What are you going to ask him? Hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of what I, I, I mentioned there with Paul Brown bringing him in, he brought in Bill Willis and just because of, of Jim Crow laws and society at the time, uh, if you had one black player, you would need a second for a roommate. And Mary Motley was that roommate. And uh, we, we interviewed Mike Brown, who said, you know, his his dad didn't bring him on because he needed a roommate. He said his dad brought him on because he knew he could play. And that makes sense to me. But I know that Marion wrote him a letter and uh, asked and was turned down at some point. But I also know that uh, Marion would tell people that he was brought on to the Browns to be Bill Willis's roommate. And I would ask Marion, hey, are you saying that tongue in cheek, kind of joking? knowing that, you know, you were such a, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, or, or did, did you actually feel that you were simply another African-American guy that, that could room with Bill Willis? Why do you think I know the name Marion Motley, but I don't know the name Bill Willis? Running back. 
Okay, what was Bill Willis then? He well, he was a middle guard. Ah, that makes sense and why I don't know that name. And because you said Marion Motley was brought on and Bill Willis was basically the star, I'm using air quotes again, you know? Yeah, he he, uh, he was a lineman and a middle guard. And, and um, yeah, he he was... He wasn't the biggest guy, but he was, he was smart and fast. And he, we interviewed his sons and his, his two of his three, two of the three sons he has. And, and they, they were so awesome. Uh, he, they were telling us about, you know, how their father would, he would get the, the jump on everybody without being off sides because he would just look for the little things, the little twitches in the finger, uh, on the, the, the center's uh, hand on the ball, things like that. So he wasn't the biggest guy, but he was fast and he was smart. Going back to what you mentioned, why the NFL films crew is so good compared to some of these other sports because of that anticipation and the little things and looking at everything. I'm going to give you one more DeLorean question because I don't typically do this, but because you have a specific career, I'm going to give you unlimited amount of time as in you can go anywhere you want because you have my DeLorean and money. That's not a barrier. You can create one documentary in that moment. What documentary are you creating? I would love to do, like, I don't know if you've ever seen an NFL film set a piece called Rebels with a Cause. It was about the, the American Football League in the 60s. I would love to do the All-America Football Conference version of that. It was another rival league that, uh, depending on how you look at it, you could call it a merger with the NFL, or you could just say that three teams folded in, two teams still exist. <laughs> Take over. <laughs> Yeah, but like just the fact that the Cleveland Browns dominated that league and we're still that league was looked at as a minor league to, to the NFL. But then the Cleveland Browns came in and the first in 1950 when the Browns, the Niners and the then Baltimore Colts, not they're not the same franchise as the current Colts. But when they came in in 1950, the Cleveland Browns not only beat the defending NFL world champions, the Philadelphia Eagles, and, and the first game of the year. Uh, but they also beat the Rams for the championship that year. So it, it might have maybe some, some teams were inferior compared to the NFL, but the, the Browns and the Niners, they, they held their own. And, and I, I would, I would love to do a piece kind of like a rebels with the cause and, and talk about the, the rebels of, of the 1940s. And it'd be great to actually be there too when it's happening to be able to see that. And of course, I mean, that's kind of cheating because they didn't have the, the you know, as much TV and all the whole, we could watch it on YouTubes and stuff nowadays. Uh, but speaking of YouTubes and going back to nowadays with your current, you mentioned you're raising capital for your film. Is there any way that a listener of the show could support your film if they were looking for to do so? Yeah, right now we, we're, Contemplating different avenues. Um, I, I don't want to say any names, but you know, we're, we're talking to uh, a recognizable name about being our executive producer to help us uh, raise the rest of it. We've, we've probably filmed 90% of it, of the interviews. We, there's, there's a few more just because of COVID we haven't been able to get out to do. Uh, we, we'd love to do Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels, who, who also went to Kent McKinley, just like uh, Mary and Molly. Uh, and then Alan Page, he's also from Canton. Those, those, uh, those are kind of our big three to get. Uh, and, and I imagine we'll be able to get those, but you know, there's, there's other things that we will have to raise money for. Uh, we want to use some animation and distribution and marketing, of course. But uh, I think the ultimate goal is, is really, uh, I, th I think we want to get in classrooms because it's, it's, it's educational. Uh, it's, 
it's not just a football story. It's not just an inspirational story about somebody succeeding at football, but it's, it's, uh, it's a civil rights story and it kind of coincides with a lot of what's going on right now. Um, and coincidentally, Mary Motley played football for the Wolfpack, just like Colin Kaepernick. So there, there's a lot of parallels of what's been going on these past few years. But when we, we ultimately look at it, uh, we want to finish this project and, and get it into some classrooms, maybe some, some, some uh, uh, maybe some uh, other venues. I, I'm not sure, but uh, definitely. Uh, and, and, but at the time, we're, we're not really crowdfunding just yet. We, we might do it. We'll, we'll see how things go. Okay. Yeah. If you ever do, just let me know. We'll make sure we support that as well here on the network. Um, if you have any last words of wisdom for the listeners of the show, what would you give them? Words of wisdom. Hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, what I, I really found out during my time at NFL Network was a lot of people aren't familiar with football history. You know, the 1990s, about as far back as a lot of people in the business go. And to me, it's your people who don't know anything before then are just missing out on a lot because there are so many great stories that, that happened. And watching the evolution of the game, you know, if, if, if you need a hobby, if you want to do some research, uh, watch some old films, read some books, you know, you, you can't go wrong with football history. There you go. Dive in to some good old football history. I mean, I can't think of anything better to do, right? And what better way to dive in some good old football history than to listen to a podcast? Sure. I mean, there's the Football History Dude podcast, which you're listening to right now. But I promise you, if you head over to the Sports History Network website, you're going to find so many more and different types across the genres. I suggest you head over there right now. You got to pause. Well, I mean, I guess you can finish this out because we're near the end. Head over to the website. That's at sportshistorynetwork.com. While you're there, let us know if you'd be interested in starting your own sports history podcast, because we're always looking to add more shows. Just fill out the contact page, and we'll be sure to get back right with you. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history the NFL. And remember dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.